And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. How's it going, everybody? And welcome to the Parish Pump Podcast. Councillor Dermot Daisy O'Brien is here with you as always. Um, and I'm just going to give you a short intro because I have a recording of an interview that I really want to share with you um, and the significance of this time of year for the last 38 years at this time of the year within the Republican movement. Um, we pause and honour and commemorate and remember the 10 hunger strikers who died in the H-blocks in 1981 as part of a protest to restore political status for political prisoners who are being criminalised um, by the British government. So in our commemoration during this time of lockdown in the, the pandemic, um, activists and Republicans in Wicklow and Wexford got together and we decided to do an online programme and it was my honour to host that event uh, within which we we got Big McFarland to come in and and answer a few questions that were posed by some of the activists on the ground uh, within the two counties. Um, so I don't need to give, I won't give much away, but Bick uh, is a guy who, who's, he's an important figure in the Republican movement, in my opinion, because he has traveled the journey from a young, a young boy who responded to attacks on his community and a social situation that was, bleak um and and essentially traveled a journey from throwing stones at at army patrols um to getting involved in the movement um to ending up in prison to taking a leadership role during a a hunger strike where 10 people lost their lives to then becoming uh, a voice of the republican movement um over a long period of time to today um, and during that time also being a musician and writing songs and and Bic supports us um, by way of helping us to remember the the time when the hunger strikes happened um, what was going on in the intimate spaces of the H-blocks um, and what the significance of that is for us today um, and how it informs our struggle and how it uh, plays a role uh, as we move forward and look to the future. So it is my pleasure to introduce the interview with Brendan Bick McFarlane. Enjoy. I'm going to invite Bick in now. We're uh, delighted to have him. Um, <coughs> how, do we intro- how, how do you introduce someone like Bick? So, you know, yeah, the word handsome. <laughs> you didn't give me a chance to speak. I was going to say, like myself, a handsome, <laughs> a handsome man. Um, if I was going to, if I was going to describe Bick uh, from my my perspective, um, I would say he's someone. Even looking through, you know, the story um, of you, Bick, I would say that you're someone who was almost drawn into the struggle rather than running towards the struggle that you you know, played a role or felt compelled to defend your community. Um, and within that, there was, and I think it's something we might talk about, a deep desire for justice, for social justice. Um, and that, you know, when people decide to defend communities and, and join an armed struggle, that's something that is driven. Um, when it's driven by, you know, a sense of justice and social justice, um, then it's quite different than someone who, has arms and is a, an oppressor or uh, someone who is uh, dominating or, or taking land uh, without permission or so is that a fair assessment? Uh, to tell you the truth I think that's probably fair enough Dermot uh, because I mean I, if you go back when I was a student and in, in, in the mid 60s around the 50th anniversary of uh, 1916 a couple of my mates were in the Fela and they asked me to join the FENA, and I told them the F off in our road, and they think I was crazy. So, uh, I mean, I've been off after that away at college in, in Wales. It was actually a seminary I was in. But uh, I suppose a, a telling factor for me in terms of drawing me to struggle was the programs of 1969. 
uh, I lived in Ardoin, and it was hit. It was hit very, very hard. The same was on Bay Street in the west of the city, same as Derry, and uh, it was uh, it was a wake up call for me, you know, because I was going back to college in North Wales, having been involved in trying to help to defend uh, our area. Now, not that it played a big part, you know, you're throwing bottles and stones at armoured cars and, and, you know, RUC and B-Specials and Loyalists armed the teeth. So for me, it was a wake-up call because um, people were killed in our area. Dozens and dozens of people were injured by gunfire. Loads of uh, houses burnt down. I was actually in my mate's house. We were GAA boys and we were lucky to get out the back door from the front of the Crumlin Road when they come through the front and burnt the whole front of the, of the front of the So for me, um, in that sense, there. when I went back to college, I couldn't really settle too well. I mean, my mind was sort of focused on, on what was what had left behind me. And uh, when I came home, just coming into the summer of uh, 1970, I was back and I'm still a uh, minor footballer. I was just coming out of minor football. And uh, again, the area was attacked in, in June. Uh, the, the latter part of June, the same time as the short traumas attacked, and again in there again to help to, to defend the area. I, I, I mean, I wasn't a member of anything other than the, the local Ardoin Kickham's GA club, but I think in the aftermath of that, you know, I had some friends of mine were asking me because we were out fighting on the front of the Crumlin Road, and uh, you know there were scores of people injured, but it was just sort of a, like at that time there was a rebirth of the IRA and Ardoin for certain because they were able to produce weapons and to defend the area and we witnessed them defending the area so in the aftermath of that some friends of mine had said to me about uh, what I think of uh, getting involved in some shape form or fashion to help belong to a body of people that would help to defend the area so it was more drawn into it rather than growing up through it you know mm-hmm. from a very Irish nationalist type of family as opposed to a Republican family background, very religious uh, family circle. So in that sense, uh, uh, I was more I, right. I think I was drawn to it by circumstances as opposed to me seeking it to, to do anything until uh, until that occurred. Yeah, and it's it's interesting then when you look at you know where you are now or you're you know you're again like like jerry you're a custodian of of stories you've played roles you know when you when you look at a journey from stone thrower uh, or or community defender you know to then become you know play pursue a pathway through a movement uh, into an armed struggle uh onto you know which ends you up uh, as a prisoner um, then you you know you take leadership roles, and I think there's something fascinating about a journey w- towards leadership for someone who ultimately becomes the officer commanding the the H blocks when when it comes to the second round of hunger strikes. And you know, could you tell us about even that journey? Is that something that that just happens incidentally, or you know, for us in this movement, there's something about leadership that that is very very important. How would you pursue a pathway to a leadership role like that? Well, can, can I tell you first and foremost, it was with extreme reluctance in the first place that I took any position at all. And I need to uh, just open up and fire a broadside here at our um, former leader there, Mr. Adams, who's sitting in, that uh, was one of the people uh, that introduced me into politics as such. Because when I ended up in Cage 11, he was there. And... Uh, you know, our key focus, me and the two other boys, Skeet Hamilton and, and Seamus Clark, we were, our focus was on cutting fences, digging tunnels, climbing walls, escape, escape, escape. When Jerry Adams discovered that I could type, uh, a young man in his early 20s, in the early 70s, who could use a typewriter was an extreme anomaly. And when he found out I could type, I got a nine to five job, Monday to Friday, except if I was playing football or training, uh, with him typing up articles for a public, pamphlets, education briefs, documents, scrutinizing um, all sorts of um, British stuff. For example, he, he sort of introduced me to looking at British counterinsurgency strategies. And Kitson, whom I'd never heard of, uh, was on the shelf 
and his chef. And he said, you need to read this because we're doing this. This is what they're at. This is what they're going to do. The analysis was there. And in the first six months in there, that's where I got my Baptist of politics than I did in the previous 20 years of my life. So that, I suppose, set a bit of a trend for me to be involved and, and, and you know, get, get into grips with the politics of it and uh, understanding at that period of time in the mid-70s, the, the adoption of the criminalization policy that uh, the, the British had uh, introduced. And people like Jerry, uh, Jerry Kelly was in another cage and, uh, and others, uh, had a very, very, very strong grasp and understanding of the manner in which things were developing. So in a sense, I was privileged to get that education and it sort of propels you, if not into a leadership role, at least into a role of being able to understand the machinations of the politics of the British and understand that you're able then to help other people say, look, this is the way it is. You know, let's have a look at this. This, 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 this is deeper than politics. Uh, in terms of leadership, uh, that came along by pure accident for me. Pure accident because shortly after leaving Cage 11, uh, Larry Marley had the Guillaume boat deceased, uh, uh, tried an escape and ended up, we got as far as the front gate and then we actually had escaped from political status in the cages with all the all the sort of comforts that you have with her straight into the hedge flocks in the middle of a protest. So the rest of it is sort of, as you say, it's history after that. And, you know, we came to know Bobby Sands there and quite a lot of others and, and hunger strikers as well. I shared a cell with Thomas Michael Wheat for a period. But in that sense, sir, when you got involved in there, you had a bit of knowledge. You were able to, you know, talk out the doors of the day in terms of a better term give lectures or get involved in discussions. Uh, I was slowly but surely drawn into a central group of people that were analyzing and looking at ways forward out of the blanket protest. And uh, you know, people like Bobby Sands had a lot of faith in me, uh, which I was uh, flabbergasted by in the first place. Right? But uh, they had a lot of faith in me in order to put trust in me to carry out whatever functions, whatever duties were required. And that's how I ended up in, in a leadership position inside the H-Blox. And was it, is it important, because, you know, when you talk about the, I mean, at the time we could say that the, the political dimension of the movement was kind of secondary to the, the military dimension, shall we say. And, you know, how important was it that these principles, that, that the, the, those values that were, kind of within the lectures or within the conversations uh, across the cells. And, you know, it, it, when it comes to acting and taking strategic decisions and moving the struggle forward, um, with that that element of it critical. And then, you know, when we saw the election piece come into play further down the road, um, without without that stuff, can you, you know, where would we have ended up? Or can you imagine even? Yeah, there, there, are, there are many people say to me, you know, <clears throat> Without the hunger strikes, where would you be? I was speaking to somebody yesterday just about this. And uh, what you need to understand, what we were trying to impress upon people is, you know, this is not a military struggle. This is a political struggle. What we use military means to enhance and secure the developments and, and the gains that we get to try and, and, and secure them. It's of necessity. You know, nobody willingly decides, oh, let's go out and blow up all around us, you know. It, it, it was a necessity as part and parcel of arms, armed insurrection, armed struggle, revolution. It's an essential part of it. But it is specifically there to underpin the political gains and the political direction of your struggle. And again, you know, at times when people say, right, we're going to up the ante here, there was always a big, yo, yo, great, let's get in there. But by the flip side of the coin, people say, right, I'm going to tone things down a bit. You know, why? What for? You know, what are you doing? Up? So you needed to get the understanding of people. There's a there's a political, politically strategic reason for doing everything involved in struggle. And one key thing about it is, is and I've had faith in our leadership over the years, is that uh, while we're not infallible, while our people are not infallible, and we don't always get it right, uh, we are prepared to stand up and say, look, who 
didn't call that too good, let's move on. But what you need to do is you need to have faith in the direction you're going in and the people who are, you know, helping to drive the truck along that road. So for me, it was crucial that everybody understood the politics of the struggle, the history of the struggle, the politics of it, and where we're going. Jerry made a point at the start there. You know, this is about whatever we do today is about looking to the future. And that was the same with the hunger strikes. The hunger strikes weren't about, you know, you know, getting a parcel, getting a pair of jeans. You know, it was about defeating British criminalization. It was about defeating the British strategy that was designed specifically to defeat the IRA's struggle for freedom in this country. So the hunger strikes were a pivotal uh, point in relation to that whole aspect of struggle. They were crucial. They played a very significant role. And I know people like Jerry Adams, Martin McGinnis and all on the outside were very, very fearful because there is no other struggle that I know of that has ended up with its prisoners at the forefront of struggle. And in terms of the hunger strike, not by design by us, but we ended up propelled to the cold face of struggle around which uh, became, uh, you know, the integrity, the credentials, the credibility of, of, of the entire struggle it was based on people in prison. So in that sense, uh, there was a crucial aspect for people to understand the politics of it. And it was important for people to realize inside and outside, look, this is what we're in for. This is what we're, you know, the long haul here. We need to understand it and we need to be committed to it. That's a that's a, a fascinating analysis, and I think it it kind of we got we had some questions kind of thrown in from some of the activists between Wicklow and Wexford, and a couple of them kind of um, st- strike me now in terms of when you're when the prisoners are at the forefront of the struggle and you're in there and it's and you're kind of cut off to a degree from from communication, uh, you know, unless you're innovative and creative about how that works. And I know people were very committed in that regard, but to what degree then were you able to analyze the support that was out there in the communities and perhaps the support that wasn't there in terms of the Irish government and how did that impact on this resolve um, to drive the, the struggle forward while you were inside? Yeah, well, there's, there's two aspects to that. <clears throat> there's one is uh, your relationship with the community. The other aspect is communication, you know, to let people uh, understand what's happening, what's going on. And the, and the second aspect is obviously uh, the Irish government. Uh, who were appalling and, and failed miserably. Not just, I mean, not just us in prison. You know, we were IRA prisoners. We do not expect, we didn't expect the Irish government. You know, but in terms of, of, of the nationalist Republican people north of that border, they were miserably, miserably dealt with, let down year after year by government after government since partition, since partition, and you could see it very, very clearly as well during the hunger strike period that they uh, they would have done anything to eradicate Republican resistance uh, in terms of struggle in this country. They, they, they brought in Section 31. They brought in all sorts of draconian measures, you know, to clamp, particularly the, you know, Jerry Adams or people are Republican spokespersons are on to answer questions about struggle. And you, you can't, you can see them, but you can't hear them, you know. But you could hear them in England, who who, who we were directly fighting against. They could go on TV, uh, you know, crazy stuff designed to uh, undermine and clump knowledge as well. Uh, in terms of communication, um, you know, there's, there's 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 different aspects of communication. We were able to communicate directly to the leadership on the outside of the prison by a system of communi- you know, little comms that that were written on cigarette paper, wrapped up in stretch and seal, and smuggled out in the visits every day of the week by a team primarily of young women and married women and mothers and sisters, primarily uh, people like that, who would come up on a visit, have the visit, smuggle out the, uh, the communication. For example, see during the hunger strike period, I would have been able to write on a Monday morning, I could send out smuggle out on someone's visit a call and it would go directly on the visitor's bus 
at 12 o'clock when the visits were finished, directly to the Sinn Féin centre on the Falls Road. And it was possible, and it did happen, that I had an answer back in on another visit on the Monday afternoon, because we structured visits by every single person volunteering one of their two visits per month, right? Per month for what they called a Shinfian visit from the POW department. So someone would come up in the visit in the morning and we knew what prisoner was going out in the afternoon and who was coming up that afternoon. So it, it was absolutely fascinating. By the same token, people get into writing a lot. I know Jerry Adams wrote, was talking about Bobby writing. I mean, Jerry was the same in the cases. He wrote and wrote and wrote. Uh, articles going out, uh, all sorts of educational stuff getting developed. And we encourage all prisoners to write stories, poetry, songs, but we told them to write to people in terms of bringing a message, write to a politician, write to church people, write to actors, actresses. You know, but someone wrote to Jane Fonda and she replied. She, she you know, she, she went directly to the prison. She acknowledged receipt of it. You know, people like that there, this was just an absolute fascinating mode of communication and getting the message out there, getting the message out there. I even know that one of the columns that I wrote was taken by the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, placed in a glass box and put on display in, in, in the church right? because we had just written something about this is a situation, we want to talk about it, we want to, you know, just adjust regime. And uh, so you're able to do that there. But it was crucial. Communication was crucial. And uh, the terms of getting information, it was absolutely crucial, particularly during the hunger strike period where we needed to know what was happening outside. They could send in information. We smuggled in small crystal set videos in order to hear the news in the evening. So there was quite a variety of ways of, uh, of communicating. And it's, it's, it's mad to think of in the, in the current information age how, you know, comms is such an easy thing now that every human being nearly can, can manage their own uh, words out into the world in whatever fashion, whether it's real, fake, or, you know, or, and yet in your, in your time, that was something that had to be sophisticated. And, and was it, um, would it have been, how important would the comms in terms of the support levels of support, like did that was that important for morale? Um, like you know, getting information in it that who is supporting you, the unions on side, um, or the you know where where are we at in terms of civil society? Um, was was that a, a factor as well? Yeah, that was also a very very important factor uh, because we would get information in from the central office in the Falls Road. What they would do for they would tell you that. So many thousand people attacked the British Embassy in Paris during that hunger strike period, during the protest period. You know, and, and there's actually lawyer friends of mine that I've met since release who told me they were on those protests. They went to the abattoir and, and they got pig's blood and they splattered it all over the embassy. Now, that information coming into us were so many thousand people in Paris, so many thousand people in America. There was a picket on all... British consuls in America every single day of the week for years, every single day of the week. And you're getting notification in about information in terms of protest, solidarity, around the world, uh, information coming in uh, all the time, which was important uh, because it gave people a sense of, well, there's so many people protesting here. Our area did this. So-and-so's area did that. Here's what they're doing in England. Here's what they're doing in America, Australia. Europe, all over the place. So the information coming in was was essential. And at night, you know, the key thing when the screws went off, Judy, and locked in the first thing in the agenda after the rosary, mind you, the rosary was said, recited every night. Uh, and once the rosary was said, each person who had a visit would get up and give out the news. And any information that was smuggled in was read out. So every single person in a H-block cell would be ear to the door listening for the information coming in. And it was such such an important feature uh, of life within the, the H-block. 
And I suppose then when it, you know, some of the questions that, that came in from, from our activists are kind of touching on, um, you know, when we talk about the courage and resolve of those uh, ultimately who, who went on hunger strike um, and how that, you know, you, again, you're, you're in a role where you're part of, I suppose, the selection process, you're working on who's next um, and, and then you've got to manage who's outside in terms of family, uh, relatives um, and, and this kind of commitment to a point where uh, the end might be uh, death. Um, and that's, uh, I imagine it was acutely, everyone was acutely aware of that possibility. And yet, you know, the, the impact of that must have had to have been managed in a way, you know, to, to whereas we've all read the stories about how, how committed and, and I suppose for many activists who, who came into the movement around that time, and I'd be one of them, it's that we're, we're almost in awe of this resolve. And, and I suppose it links to what you're talking about, about people's principles and values. And, but then also it's, it has to be linked to what they know they're leaving behind and uh, in terms of family and, and community. Um, can you speak to us of that? Yeah, the um, there's a number of aspects to that, but probably the you know the most heartbreaking aspects of that and hunger strike in terms of family uh, and and how the impact of it uh, on us inside, but particularly the families outside, and, and and this needs to be said and needs to be recognised that irrespective of what pressure the likes of me and the rest of us inside the prison were under. Um, it just peeled into insignificance in, in, in comparison to the families that were suffering. And all you had to do, and we saw this because by the time the second hunger strike took place, they started giving us newspapers. And when you look at the photograph of, of Jared Sands walking behind his father's room, you look at the, at the photograph of Joe McDonald's we lad hanging over the coffin, Mickey Devane's kids. You know, when, when you think about that there, it's... Um, it's extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult, you know, to to internalize that. You can't even comprehend. Now, you know, we, we all have our, our 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 low points and our down days. But one of the key things people used to ask me was, you know, how you know, how how did you how did you guys stick the pressure of that there? Particularly those of us maybe in a position where you're up and down. I was up and down to the prison hospital regularly during the second hunger strike. Frequently, and uh, you're you're going in to sit beside hunger strikers and talk to them. You come back a week later, and one of them's gone. You come back a week later, and another one's you know, and it's 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 very very hard to do. So I mean, there's times I was going back to the cell, and uh, you know, you're sitting down there, and there's two of us in the cell, me and Butch Butler in the cell, and you don't want to talk, you don't want to. You just feel like the walls are closing in on you, but one of the stabilizing factors and one of the factors that give you the uh, this jizz or this lift was not just the fact that your comrades up in that hospital were down on hunger strike, but the families. When you looked at the families and the pressure that they were under, you would say to yourself, how dare I even consider myself in the same league. So you, you sort of get this thing into your head. I need to do better tomorrow than I've done today. You know, and, 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 and that's it. And, and you need to focus and you need to give every single thing that you can because your guys land in the hospital wing, 50 yards away, dying every week. And you're going up to visit them. And the, the, the inspiration that they give you, I mean, you go in, I, I went in one day, right? And I remember they said to me, uh, we'd have to get some information. The British released some terse bloody statement or other about, you know, Her Majesty's government are bound by a humane regime, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Absolute rubbish. But they had to go up, talk to the boys, and they were saying, oh, it's absolute rubbish. And then the screw said, uh, there's no transport. You're going to have to go with the after lunch. And they kept me there all day. I was up at 10 o'clock in the morning. I was there at 4 or 5 o'clock in the day. And uh, I came back and I wrote out. And the first thing Jerry Adams said to me when he wrote back in, that was deliberate. They are trying 
to impact upon you because you're sitting with your comrades who are dying. That was designed to let you see, you know, no transport. Just coming down with transit vans all over the place. If I wanted to take you to the isolation block, you'd have four vans queued up in five minutes. So he was able to say it. I mean, I, I was aware of that. But, you know, just to, just to give you, there are different occasions. Every single one of those hunger strikers that I talked to impressed me in their own way, in different ways. And, and uh, you know, within one day, when then I was there over lunchtime, and the, the PO says, that's lunch. What do you want me to get you a bit of lunch? And I'm sitting in the campaign. There was about seven or eight of hunger strikers sitting there. I says, no, you're all right. I'm not hungry. And Thomas McElwee overheard. I'm not going to use bad language here, right? But in the midst of his laughter, there was about three Fs come out of him. And he says, what did you say? I says, no, it's all right. And he laughed and laughed. I was in a cell with you, you idiot, for Ireland, he says. So go and get your grub. And the screw called me out. And he said to me, uh, well, I apologize. I didn't mean, I says, no, it's all right. He says, you can have your food with us down in our mess. I said, oh, I told you I, was not, I wasn't hungry, and I'm not hungry, and I just went back in again. I was starving. Let me <laughs> but, uh, and that's the sort of thing Thomas McElwee was, you, don't you sit there and tell me that you're not hungry. I was in a cell with you, you idiot friend. So, And there are loads of different stories, and, and they lighten the atmosphere. And I know that uh, Jerry had come in to visit me on Karen at one stage, and uh, she was ready, I think. And he was sitting talking about uh, different aspects, and Thomas McElwee was slagging him, and Jerry wanted a drink of water. So they, what they had was water in jugs, and uh, I think Thomas was saying, and Jesus, you can't even come in here, and he's stealing your water. <laughs> so uh, it was a lighthearted thing about them as, as, as well, as, as, as obviously the serious said, but they give you, you walk away from there saying, Jesus, some of the guys are flying. You know, it's as if no problem, you know, switch the TV on. Ah, uh, sickness in the year way back near block, you know. Uh, inspirational, absolutely inspirational, every single one of them. And I know it was said once that about, I think it was Patchy and maybe said that there was, for those who knew that they were in the picture or on a list or potentially next in line, that they were so, he, I think he almost said that they were so focused on their role and responsibility that they that, uh, they weren't, they didn't leave headspace to be reconciling the emotional impact of what was happening around them. That it was like, I know I have, if I'm when I'm next, I know what I have to do, and I'm focused on that. And again, like the the there's something, you know. I wonder is where they did they become unique humans because of the circumstances, um, or were they unique humans overall? If you know what I mean, like. Oh, I know perfectly what you mean, and. and our view, quite simply, is this. You had guys in hunger strike who had different talents. Guys in prison with different talents. Some educated, some not. Some musicians, some sportsmen. Different different talents. But they're all from, generally speaking, all the prisoners, all hunger strikers, they're all from ordinary, everyday, rural and urban backgrounds. Young men growing up in hard situations sometimes. Uh... And I think you touched on it, was it the circumstances? They, they were fired point blank into an extraordinary set of circumstances. Absolutely extraordinary circumstances. And they reacted extraordinarily to the circumstances that they found themselves in. They rose to the challenge. And going back to Cairn Nugent, who was the first, in fact, it's, it's actually Cairn Nugent's anniversary today he died in 2000 on this day um, when, when when faced with the challenge of succumbing or surrendering to a criminal regime or opting for the political recognition as a, 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 a PWD first thing he said well you, you want to put a uniform on you may nail it on my back and that started it Jim was about 19 years of age when he was into that he was a tough young West Belfast guy, and he got hammered left, right, and center. Never bent. Not one minute did he even consider bending. And, and, and that sort of situation with him, he was in extraordinary circumstances, and he stepped up to it. 
as did everybody else who came along saying, well, they're not going to use us to, to, to drive a nail into the coffin of, of, of Republican struggle. We are not going to be used as in any shape, form, or fashion to damage or undermine the morale or undermine the credentials or the credibility of Republican struggle. And when it came to the hunger strikes, that was clear, very, very clear by everybody who came forward to volunteer for hunger strike. And you're right about Pat Sheehan. Pat Sheehan actually has a fascinating story to tell as a former hunger striker, as does Lawrence McKeown and Paddy uh, from, uh, what do you call it? Chatarma. Uh, they have fascinating stories to tell in terms of how they went through it or how they come out the other end of it, and stories about relationships with their families. And, I mean, Pat Sheehan talks about the selfishness that he had in relation to his family by going on hunger strike. And, you know, if ever you get a chance to uh, to listen or, or, or to see it, you know, people people should, because he does talk about it sometimes. Fascinating stories. And again, Lawrence McKeown, uh, relationship with his mother broke down because she intervened to take him off hunger strike at 72 days. Uh, I think it took a year to rebuild the relationship because he he, he took it back. She, she uh, in an act of love, she saved her son from dying. So to all extents and purposes, Lawrence McKeown was gone. He was in a coma. He was gone. And she brought him back. And he fell out with her work. You know, but again, fascinating Fascinating stories. And is there what do you, you know, Bick? You, you get and you know it's thirty nine years we're we're talking about today, and you know I'm sure you've been involved in one way or another with remembrance every single year since then. And you know what have you seen? We are not necessarily asking people that the ask isn't the same nowadays in terms of the Republican struggle, but the struggle is still there, and we haven't achieved our goals yet. And what have you seen over the years in terms of what the what the ask is and how we are inviting people into the the Republican movement? Um, and I imagine back then it was probably not so difficult to the invitation was probably easy in terms of people were getting their lives, their everyday life uh, was impacted by. Uh, in one way or another, by the British uh, imperial forces, uh, or whether it was the RUC or or the army, that it was like you, you know, people were were stepping up to defend. Um, what have you seen over the years in terms of uh, the the different reasons now, and and how important they are for people to join the struggle or continue in the struggle, even though it, it has adapted over time. Well, the nature of struggle has changed uh, immensely. You know, from the post-hunger strike period, or well, I suppose uh, from that period onwards, you know, there, there was a recognition and a belief by people that a political platform that we could utilize was going to, to, to yield some sort of benefits. And uh, it, it was crucial for our leadership at that stage, and they did, uh, focus on the development of political structures within communities, within areas, and wider. And... Uh, to follow a path down the road. Now, you know, for me to get involved in the struggle was easy. It was black and white. You know, and we're going to let these kick us all over the streets or we're going to blow lumps out of them. And that was easy. But today, it's a different kettle of fish. You need to tackle every conceivable aspect of life. Every And, and, and we have, like yourself, elected representatives up here, like yourself, who are involved in issues that would never have crossed my mind in the 1970s. They just wouldn't have been you know, you know, no issues, you know, housing problem, housing problem, housing problem, trying to attack this barracks here, get my head There's also so many different facets to this struggle that it's crucial for people to be involved. It's crucial for us to provide proper, adequate, responsible, accountable representation, knowledgeable representation that will be there for people, that will act for people, that will challenge authority. No matter whether it's lift, getting your bins lifted or up at Stormont or in Leinster House or wherever, it doesn't matter what the issue is. There's a crucial aspect to bring people along and struggle. And that's why, you know, these days I look to a lot of young people coming on board, 
And, you know, I would talk to them would ask me about, you know, the hunger strike period, about escapes and about different different things like that. And I find that it's very important for people like me to pass on our experiences and to explain to them the necessity of focusing on developing their political structures, de- developing themselves politically, understanding the enemy that they're at, understanding what we require in terms of a forward-looking progressive party, what we need to do, come up with suggestions, come up with ideas, get in there and work. We've got loads of young people, some cracking young people up here in North Belfast, some of them are university graduates, others are not, all working diligently and uh, working very, very hard to drive this struggle forward. So it's important that uh, we attract a lot more. You know, I'm at a stage now where that age, you know, you're not not running up and down streets anymore, but it's important if we, people like me, have any role to play at all, it's encouraging people to become involved, not to be afraid to stand up and give their view, be counted and put their politics on the line and go out there and work for people because that's what Republican struggles about is working for our people. That's brilliant and I think it's kind of you know, you touched on the importance of storytelling is the, is the way I kind of, uh, you know, and, and and how even, you know, music and the art and the poetry and, you know, it, it, as we as we remember and it, I, I imagine or a picture in someone who's 20 years of age, as you say, or a college graduate or they're in college and um, they might be dazzled by, the you know, the, the events of the past or they might be seduced by the idea of, um, this this kind of armed struggle and and that's not an offer at the moment and yet there's plenty of other offers there but but at the same time there are people out there who who judge us for honoring our patriot dead who judge us for remembering in the ways that we do um so you know there's something about the balance isn't there about how our our young republicans our young activists do recognize what you were involved in what you did, what Bobby did, uh, what others did, um, but that their role today uh, might be different. Yeah, the role the role is is crucially different, and uh, you know you actually said there about you know the no arm struggle at the moment, scrub at the moment, <laughs> uh, and I know you don't mean anything with that there, but uh, we we look at this very very strictly centrally that there is no reason, there are no excuses for taking up arms at this juncture and and, and struggle. There's a political way forward. We can do it. We're confident that we can do it. We have done massive amounts of work, particularly in the 26 counties. I was absolutely astounded by the result. And congratulations to every one of you, Fred, all the way down from Mary Lou McDonald, right down to you, (laughs) <laughs> that that have, have been uh, successful in, uh, in driving this struggle forward. So uh, that's the way forward. There's no excuse for anybody offering any other alternative other than a political way forward through engagement, inclusive engagement with every single person or every single party and body on this island to bring the, the, the struggle forward. So young people do have... Um, I mean, people do make choices. Some people get involved with some of these micro-groups, right? And uh, quite frankly, I pity them. Some of them are impressionable, just don't know, don't understand. They end up on the wrong side of a prison gate, and then they wake up wondering what happened to them. Uh, Totally different when we were doing it. Absolutely totally different. Uh, So I would encourage anybody who thinks that they have a different way than we have. I mean, people have told me, you know, disagree with you, and, you know, not going the right way. And my first question, absolutely no problem. Okay, so just tell me where I'm going wrong, and and we'll debate it and discuss it. I but no, but tell me, tell me what I need to do. Tell me where we are up the wrong path, and I try and rectify that. There, I have yet since all these groups came into existence, and I know lots of them. I'm from Ardoin, and some of them over there are still friends of mine, and uh, still talk to them, to the extent that I've said to them, look, see, you can't tell me what the alternative is. Don't be giving up to me, but do not walk past me on the other side of the street just because we think differently, because see, if you do, I'll have words with you, and that's the end of it. So 
they, nobody has yet offered me an alternative to the people that I've said, look, armed struggle's not on, let's tell me where we're going, tell me what to do, tell me what the political drive is, where are your politics, where is your strategy, where are, where is your back, where is your background, where is your support base, where, there's nothing. So I will encourage young people to take a hard and fast look at what exists in terms of microgroups uh, that are offering, they're, not, they're offering devastation. That's all they're offering. They're not offering anything positive whatsoever. So I would encourage young people to look at it, politically analyze it, have a look at where you're going, uh, and get yourself into a framework where you can see this is the potential for development. And I see if anybody, a, a young people today, teens coming into twenties, can't see what has happened with the elections down below. There's something radically wrong. But obviously, everybody in the country has seen this for what it is. This is a slap up the face for what exists as government, as politics down there. We provide a radical, clear, positive, progressive alternative to what exists, and we are going to do it. And anybody, I would encourage anybody to get onto that wagon now and, and help to make it come quicker. And on, on that note, uh, Big, where, where do you see us in terms of unity? In terms of unity? Well, once we get rid of these two that's in at the minute, you know, they don't talk to us, right? Uh, we're, on our way. we're on our way. I think there's a variety of factors in terms of, of uh, you know, progressing forward. Brexit, which nobody has talked about the last three months. Brexit, in a bizarre sort of a way, has opened things up a wee bit in terms of people looking at this island as being more beneficial as an economic unit and a political unit as opposed to two distinct political and economic units. Uh, from a European perspective, I imagine that many people in the Eurozone would look on this island as being more economically viable if it were a political unit. Now, they obviously can't change that, but they, you know, they can They can talk to people. And we have very, very clear and good representatives over there, you know, putting our case. But uh, there's just an inevitable, an inexorable move along the road down the way here to bring in this about. You know, the, the only people in these islands, in these islands that are really and truly opposed to unity are the likes of ultra-right-wing conservative unionism, i.e. DUP and some conservative people. You will find probably that the vast bulk of people in these islands would, would would err on the side of Ireland being a political and economic unit. Now, uh, that haven't, haven't been said, that uh, we still have a job working to bring that about. We need to convince and demonstrate to people that it is economically a viable alternative to what exists at the moment. That partition, we need to sell the argument clearly, that partition is the root cause of the political and economic evils in this country. And we, we need to push that out. We need to show people the benefit of working together, working as an economic unit, what it would mean for this island in terms of relationship with Europe and the rest of the world and relationships with our, our next door neighbours from Britain when it comes to the point of, 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 of trade agreements, etc. So it is crucial that, uh, that we push those arguments. On time framing, you know, who would have, who would have said... I mean, you guys down there last September would never in your wildest dreams have said that Mary Lou MacDonald would come out as, as the top favourite for Taoiseach, this, you know, in terms of the polls. Uh, you know, just, you know, or that we as a party would have would have swamped across the, the vote uh, so much you wouldn't have seen that. So things can change. Things can develop very, very quickly. And uh, in terms of unity, I mean, I'm convinced it's there. It's just a road forward and we just need to push, keep people on board and keep people focused and deliver that message. And we have credible and very able people in our leadership right across the board. I don't, I don't just mean at 32 county level, but in local councils and the assembly and Leinster House and every conceivable aspect of, of, of political life, we have very able people driving this forward and uh, I have confidence that, uh, that, that we get there sooner rather than later.
Brilliant. Um, final final word before we we have a couple of other things, and we know that you're gonna you're gonna sing us sing us out to close um, the evening. But the give us the final thoughts on the importance of of commemorations and and remembering events uh, like the hunger strikes. Sorry, I, did I freeze there? Sorry, you froze her a wee bit. Yeah, the host freezes. It's a bad sign. <laughs> Uh, just yeah. give, just pick maybe a final word on the importance of commemorating and remembering and honouring uh, the hunger strikers. Well, for me, that I uh, was watching earlier, we did a wee thing in North Belfast um, uh, as a tribute today. I mean, we put a series of videos together, and uh, they actually I didn't see all of it because it was getting prepped for this, uh-huh. but I didn't realise there were superimposing images of uh, the Casement Park 20, 25th anniversaries, uh, you know, the hunger strikers, and thousands upon thousands of people in attendance. And I was singing the song, they showed a week clip of me and Mary Lou on the stage, etc. And uh, when you're just looking out, you, you realize that the importance of bringing the message, the information of what, who the hunger strikers were, what they were about, what circumstances they were in, how they rose to meet the challenge of uh, Thatcher and Co., how all this came about, uh, and how they were inspirational to a generation of people who, I mean, the ranks of the Republican movements expanded phenomenally in the aftermath of the hunger strikers. So for me, it's crucial to remember them, not only hunger strikers, but other people who have given their lives uh, during the course of the struggle. Commemorations and remembrance, particularly celebrating the lives of hunger strikers, uh, who they were, what they were about, and putting it into the political context of the day that they were involved and making the relationship between then and today. And uh, in terms of that, it is crucial for me that the people are remembered that we do pay tribute, that we celebrate their lives, that we tell people today, this is who they were. These are, you know, our historical figures of struggle, like the men and women of 1916 or 1788 or whatever, that these are the people who came forward and helped not only to protect our struggle, but to help to propel it forward. (coughs) Excuse me. So it's crucial for me, the commemorations take place uh, in honour of Ireland's Patriot Day. Thanks a million, Big. So we can, we're going to move uh, and ask Deirdre Barker is going to do a little reading for us before Big then gets ready to to play us out with the song. So, Shamey, I think we'll activate Deirdre. Thank you. This is a, an extract from the. Um, last day's entry in Bobby Sands' diary um, on March the 17th, 1981. It it means a lot to me because my birthday is on March the 17th. St. Patrick's Day today, and as usual, nothing noticeable. I was at Mass. My hair is cut shorter and much better also. I didn't know the priest who said Mass. The orderlies were giving out food to all who were returning from Mass. They tried to give me a plate of food. It was put in front of my face, but I continued on my way as though nobody was there. I got a couple of of papers today, and as a kind of change, the Irish news was there. I'm getting news from the boys anyway. I saw one of the doctors this morning an ill-mannered sort. It tries me. My weight was 57 kilograms. I had no complaints. An official was in with me and gave me some lip. He said, I see you're reading a short book. It's a good thing it isn't a long one, for you won't finish it. That's the sort of people they were. Curse them. I don't care. It's been a long day. I was thinking today about the hunger strike. People say a lot about the body, but don't trust it. 
I consider that there is a kind of fight indeed. Firstly, the body doesn't accept the lack of food and it suffers from the temptation of food and from other aspects which gnaw at it perpetually. The body fights back, sure enough, but at the end of the day, everything returns to the primary consideration, that is, the mind. The mind is the most important. But then, where does this proper mentality stem from? Perhaps from one's desire for freedom. It isn't certain that that's where it comes from. If they aren't able to destroy the desire for freedom, they won't break you. They won't break me because the desire for freedom and the freedom of the Irish people is in my heart. The day will dawn when all the people of Ireland will have the desire for freedom to show. It is then we'll see the rising of the moon. Thank you. Thanks so much, Deirdre. Oh, oh, oh. 
Are we So thanks again to Bic for the interview. Very much appreciated. Talk to you all soon. Just a rock the mic since